Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with innovators, startup, academia, NGO, all together looking for solution to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuel Ettini, and this is the Sustainability Journey. Welcome to another episode. Today, I don't know where I can start. The father of sustainability, the man that started the course of my MBA in sustainability. So, I mean, I'm very welcome to have here to the podcast. So, humbly welcome here, Professor John Elkington. Professor Elkington, thank you so much for being here with us today. Well, Samuel, it's lovely to see you. But something I should say just before uh, we start. Firstly, um, I'm not really the father of sustainability. Um, I'm happy, I've grown happy over the decades with the term godfather. Uh, But there were other people before me. Uh, Some of them were male, like Maurice Strong, uh, who worked with Grow Holland, Brundtland and so on, on the Brundtland Commission. Then the second thing is on professor. I, I have three visiting professorships, but I tend not to style myself professor if that's okay i'm looking forward to the conversation and thank you so much for the clarification <laughs> it's really good and and you know it's to say everything is a collaborative effort and the question is really who is john elkington i mean you have been all over in the front page of newspaper and work so but what is your sustainability journey how you have become what you are a change maker in the world? Well, that's a huge question. And um, it has probably several strands. And, and and the first is that as a child, I traveled a lot with my family. My father was in the Air Force. So it took us to slightly exotic parts of the world. And one of the things that that did was to expose me fairly early on to different forms of wildlife. So I became interested in nature. Then in the uh, early 60s, I was sent away to school and I I raised money for the World Wildlife Fund in its first year. So that was 1961. So there was already that sort of element. I was 11 at that stage. And then I sort of grew up with the environmental movement and then the human rights movement and then sustainable development and all these different sort of. And when I started, I would have found it very hard to explain why I was doing what I was doing, what I was doing. My parents took about 20 years to understand uh, you know what the hell I was up to. Um, my father wanted me to go into the, the the military or to become a merchant banker or something grown up like that. But he, in the end, he understood and he they, they came around. Now it, it's possible to say sustainability is what I do, although I tend not to. But uh, now people understand. And when in 1987 uh, I set up my third company called Sustainability, uh, we really struggled with that for several years because people had never heard the term they didn't know what it meant and now it's you know sometimes you get what you wish for but it's not necessarily what you want Uh, so it's everywhere as language exactly as you said but i'm not always sure people properly understand what they should be understanding when they use the term this is something why you know we are trying also to have you and we are so proud to have you in the podcast and as you said at the beginning even though sometimes as I say, it's, it's a collaborative effort. Everybody has worked to work. You are named in many news, the godfather of sustainability, the man that coined so many concepts that are now everywhere, the triple bottom line and others. So how we can define a sustainability? How do you see the movement evolve in the few, in, in these decades? Firstly, you talk about the, um, the language. And when you first come into a new area, it's fairly easy 
to coin new language. And so, for example, when I was working on the ways in which business was addressing the environmental agenda back in the 70s, and we set up a company called Environmental Data Services to do that, um, I coined the phrase environmental excellence because people were just thinking in business, they were thinking about environment as a, just an incredible nuisance. You didn't really want to do all of this environmental safety, health stuff, but you had to. And I was just making the point that in, like the bestseller at the time, In Search of Excellence, you could actually pursue environmental performance in a very different way with a different mindset. And quite some years later, I came up with terms like uh, the green consumer. I don't, uh, there was a time when I sort of came up with time. You could just stick the green word onto different things as they do now with sustainable or regenerative or whatever. But so I would come up with terms like green growth, which again, only now are just starting to sort of gain real traction. And then to your question with sustainability, uh, a lot of people in business were defining that in quite sensible ways. If you were an engineer, they'd talk about eco-efficiency so that you how did you make or save money by doing the right thing on energy efficiency or pollution or whatever it might be and i thought that was perfectly fine but it was a stepping stone and i felt that there was something else or several other things that needed to be addressed so not just money making so the financial bottom line but the economic impact positive and negative of companies the social impact which which many companies really were very wary of talking about uh, and the environmental impact as well and just just as a, a reflection when i first started working with business in the 70s they really saw environmentalists as anti-profit anti-growth anti-capitalism anti-everything and later on we had the sort of the, that term uh, watermelon for green on the outside but red inside so th these people were actually really communists was the way that many of these business leaders thought now that's changed absolutely totally i mean it's not that activists aren't still seem to be problematic but the, the sort of the ideology has has shifted quite profoundly then just very quickly on the triple bottom line I, I, so i i was worried about eco-efficiency i thought it was useful but it wasn't enough but i spent with a colleague andrea spencer cook 18 months just trying to think if not just eco-efficiency then what are we talking about and after 18 months it's just i suddenly literally woke up one day with the triple bottom line in my brain i just thought you know, I must have heard this somewhere. And so I spent quite some weeks looking for, and this was before the internet. So you, 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 the internet was just arriving then in the mid 90s, trying to find out who had come up with that concept before to find that no one had and that it was, it was in many ways new. But I always had this sort of feeling that I'd heard something, something like that somewhere. And it was only about five or six years ago, I was going back through a book by Alvin Toffler, who some people will remember wrote books like Future Shock, but he also wrote a book called The Third Wave. And about page 237 in that book, I came across a subheading where Toffler talked about multiple bottom lines. I thought that was it. That was the sort of one of the spurs that, and then very, I mean, we were incredibly lucky because the triple bottom line went out there and for a while it was not doing very much. And then Shell and, and, and various other companies like Novo Nordisk and Denmark picked up on the concept and started reporting around it, the Global Reporting Initiative, the Dow Jones Sustainability Indexes, all of these people started to embrace it. And then most recently, the B Corp movement, the B Corporation. You, sometimes you launch things on the world with no clue 
as to what's going to happen. And I didn't have a roadmap or a, you know, a master plan. I've just sort of been quite impressed at how this little thing has scurried out into the landscape and sort of proliferated. And, and thank you for this story and see really how, how concepts that are familiar and we use every single day have been coined and work and the story behind it. And also the story and how it has changed the, the sustainability movement and, and the activism movement from the 70s to today. And talking about new words and the language, you have coined another new concept. You came out, the green swans. That is your latest book. So the coming boom in regenerative capitalism. Can you discuss a bit what, what are green swans? You know, we are familiar with the black swans. What are the green swans? And what, what is about the book? Let me start off not with swans, but fish, if I may, in the sense that Quite some years ago, at our small organization in London, I, I moved on from sustainability and 15 years ago set up a, a company called Volans. And what we were talking about was the way in which very often people like us were focusing on individual companies. Uh, you know, they, they might be leadership companies, but and their supply chains and so on. And that good work being done at that sort of level. But we were saying it's very often as though we're cleaning up individual fish and then putting those fish, nice, clean, sparkly fish, back into polluted waters. It's the markets that are often the problem. And so the question then is, how do you clean up uh, markets? Now, let me come to the, the green swans metaphor. Most of your listeners will, will know of uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who, who did the book, The Black Swan. It came out in 2007, just ahead of the financial crash. Everyone thought he was a magician because he he was talking about the sorts of disruptions that came with that crash um and what he meant was by a black swan was things that come completely out of the blue completely unexpected that secondly have a completely off the scale uh, impact i mean no one understood that they were going to come along in quite that way and have that level of impact and then thirdly very often afterwards we sit down and think oh what just happened to us and we try and understand but very often we fail to understand well enough to stop the same sorts of things or similar things happening again in the future by all of that by black swans Taleb meant anything and it could be extremely terrible like the bubonic plague or it could be something that was actually wonderful and you really wanted to happen but with green swans I was asking the question if you think about black swans as generally things that happen and cause disruption and all sorts of challenges for people who are rooted in an old order, what would it be like? And so things that take you exponentially in directions you don't want to go. What would it be like if you had market trajectories or technology trajectories or cultural trajectories or whatever that took you in directions exponentially that you did want to go? And so that was the ocean, the, the idea of... Um, green swans. And when the book came out, it was novel, but more or less at the same time, just slightly later, uh, the Bank of International Settlements also started to talk about green swans. And they meant by that disruptive changes that were helping to address particularly the climate emergency. Whereas I was thinking about something broader. I was thinking something, for example, if you think about the sustainable development goals, Climate change goes, and, and environmental factors go through all of that, but there are social, there are economic, there are cultural, there are political 
element to all of that too. That was the story of how I got to green swans. Thank you for the clarification. And really, we need more of green swans that really taking us to the next level. And the, the subsequent question is that, can you see some example of these green swans that you have come across and how they can positively impact the world? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think there are so many. I mean, people very often have said, well, I'm a green swan. And, and I've had people sending me their business cards from places like Indonesia and the Philippines saying, you know, I'm green swan. Uh, that wasn't the intention. The idea was that individuals or even individual companies could play into green swan market trajectories, but they were not themselves green swans, at least in the way I was thinking about it. So if I think about properly defined uh, green swans, say market trends, I would think, for example, of the way in which renewable energy, which most people thought would be a small percentage of, of global energy for a very long time into the future, and certainly the big oil companies like Exxon and Shell and BP and so on, that was their line. And what we've seen just in the last sort of 10, 12 years has been this spectacular shift in the price point of solar and of wind and battery technology, which has made possible extraordinary uh, development uh, in the provision of renewable energy to the point now where particular countries are finding it incredibly difficult to take on as much renewable energy as being produced at a much lower price point very often than fossil fuels because their grids are not yet configured uh, in the right way. So that, that to me is a, a, a green swan. Now, I, I've often said that a green swan may have black feathers, there, there may be some problems that come along. So for example, if you're in wind power, you're producing very large machines, and those machines have propellers or, or vanes or whatever. And the problem with those propellers is that very often they uh, are not recyclable. They're made out of materials that are just impossible to recycle. So people are thinking, can we make dock uh, yard installations out of them or whatever? But over time, we've got to make them very much part of the circular economy, not, not just uh, good because they're renewable. There are so many other green swans out there. I mean, one of them, which is smaller, but but you mentioned business school education and, and, and so on. And I know your own background MBA is at Warwick Business School. And I think the business school world has been extremely slow to embrace the sustainability agenda. I, I'd almost characterize it as a betrayal of generations of MBA students, but now it is happening and it's it's on an accelerative uh, curve. And for example, we're working with a, a set of business schools in Japan, in Spain, in Denmark, uh, and so on, different places, um, to address the question of what should the, what not just the MBA, but executive coaching and all the different things that that universities and business schools do uh, in this sort of space. What should that look like? How should it be properly put together and properly delivered? And how can different actors, different players, almost cooperate in a sort of pre-competitive way to build this new agenda and sort of corpus of knowledge and case studies and all the rest of it? And, and when I think about the sustainable development goals, which I find complicated because I find 17 of anything complicated hold in my brain which is why i went to the triple bottom line because i can remember three things at least but when i think about the sdgs i i, I think you, you you can see green swans across that entire landscape if you know how to look for them and the question now 
is how do we produce more of them? And digital technology is one of the extraordinary uh, enablers of today's and potential future green swans. But the, the other thing is just consciousness, people being aware of these sort of challenges, being aware that you can't deal with things like the climate emergency or biodiversity emergency with incremental solutions only. They're useful. I mean, they're helpful to have along the way. But we've got to think exponentially. We've got to think about how do you do things that are, whether we like it or not, radically disruptive of the old order to produce a new order that's really fit for purpose. And thank you so much, John, with these wonderful explanations. You have also preempted some of the questions that we'll discuss. We'll talk about technology and what, but a question that really you mentioned at the beginning in this um, regeneration and work and new concept and embracing the triple bottom line was the Picot movement. And Volans has been at the forefront of the movement being the one of the first uh, B Corp certified in the UK. So how do you see the movement and why you also choose at that time, not today when it's becoming a sort of mainstream, the B Corp certification? Very early in uh, the history or evolution of Volans, which, as I said, I think we set up in 2008, we got, we attracted a grant from the Skull Foundation. So Jeff Skull, the, one of the founders of eBay, had his own foundation, has his own foundation. They put in a considerable sum of money, at least for us, a million dollars um, to support the work that we were doing. And so for about 13 years, I, I would attend the Skull World Forum. And among the people I met there were the founders of B-Lab, the organization in the United States that was behind the B Corp or B Corporation movement. I liked them immensely. I liked what they were trying to do. When uh, they asked whether we would uh, incubate uh, the UK chapter of B-Lab, uh, we agreed to do that. We did it for nine or 10 months. Um, they were in our offices in London until they found their own feet. Uh, I think the UK chapter is now the biggest worldwide. I think over a thousand B Corps are now uh, operating in the UK. You know, it's fascinating to see some of the very big companies like Unilever. Now, last time I looked at, they owned about eight uh, B Corporations, probably more now. And the reason we did it was I, I like some of the the messaging. You might almost say the propaganda of the B Corp movement. I mean, you know, not just doing business better, but doing business in, in, in a way that was better for the world, better the future, better for everyone. I thought that some of the way in which they were communicating this stuff was very powerful. I also thought this could actually build critical mass uh, for change in the business world itself. Because if businesses, and particularly the, the some of the more energetic, entrepreneurial, innovative businesses were using this language and this approach, that would be very helpful. And in a way, the, 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 the B Corp movement came to us also because of the triple bottom line. As you know, I mean, all B Corps are now chartered around the triple bottom line. And, and I remember a colleague, uh, Charmian Love, who has been very active, a Canadian, but very active, involved in uh, the B Corp movement uh, internationally. And she turned to me just before we started to incubate B Lab UK and said, John, these are your people. And I don't see it like that. But what she was saying was that this is your army. Well, I, I don't think of it like, like that either. But these are people who are embracing a very similar agenda using some of the very, you know, very much the same language. And just fascinating to just watch them as they evolve and see there have been some problems along the way there's a uk business called brewdog which which has gotten into i think deservedly 
into uh, uh, problems. But then, you know, every time you mix human beings into uh, something organizational, you're going to have at times problems. But overall, I'm immensely excited about what's happening uh, with B corporations worldwide. I do a lot of work in, for example, in Brazil. Uh, I love to see, you know, countries like that embracing the same. So that's where it started and to some degree how it evolved. And thank you for this explanation. It's really also we had a lot of B Corps and people involved in the B Corp movement in the process. We really see this transformation and work. The second point you have discussed in your, you have mentioned is the role of technology. And we know we are now all over the news. We see the technology, technology is booming, the artificial intelligence and others. So what do you think? What what is the role of technology that can play in this transition towards the regenerative capitalism? And now how we can harness also effectively and efficiently the power that you said before well it's interesting because you use the term regenerative and there is a moment uh, this sort of tension between people who use sustainability in a slightly diluted form by which they mean corporate social responsibility and nice things like that i never understood sustainability to mean that I'm, i thought it was about system health about system change where systems were not healthy and i saw that as economic social environmental political uh, and so on so where we are at the moment is is with people starting to talk about regenerative economies and, and so on and we we had circular uh, before that and they're very much linked um, people in the circular community have often talked about regeneration as well and quite often talking about circular is something you do with technological components of the economy and regenerative what you do with biological or ecological components of the economy i think regeneration is broader than that i, th I think we have to now regenerate our economies well that's clear uh, we have to regenerate our societies and that's becoming increasingly clear and you you look at this this mad race now between India and China, who's got most people, that's 20th century or 19th century. Really, we've got to think about well, however many people you have, how do you deal with demographic shifts? And, and in many countries now, the aging of populations is at a time of shrinking employment and so on, I think is, is becoming a, a fairly major headache. So regeneration, I think, is the term that we use but it's still towards sustainability ultimate you know that's the compass point i think it's an immensely exciting period I, and, and i think one of the things that worries me though is you just to come on to technology ahead of technology comes science and there are many people in the political world particularly the republicans in the united states the conservatives in my own country the united kingdom and so on who think that they can choose to believe in science or not which isn't the point of science. I mean, science is meant to be falsifiable. You can you can demonstrate whether or not things are true statistically or not. Uh, but science, I think, is absolutely crucial, and, and particularly when you get into things like climate chaos. So I think science is crucial. Technology, as I briefly referenced earlier on, is increasingly digital. And wherever you look now, you start to see, you mentioned artificial intelligence, expert systems, big data, but autonomous vehicles, synthetic biology, all of these different things, the, 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 the renewable energy business and smart grids and all the rest of it. So many of these new technologies, there are a huge number coming into the economy at the, more or less the same time. And the, the as we've seen with chat GBT and some of these new uh, approaches to AI. AI is going to get involved in accelerating innovation. The question then is, is the innovation the right innovation? Is it being ex 
accelerated in the right direction and are the implications of that acceleration in terms of people losing their jobs and all sorts of other things being properly taken into uh, account early enough in the process uh, to influence change. So I, I, I've always found technology absolutely fascinating. I think it's an incredibly exciting time to be involved in that. And I've visited some of the AI companies like DeepMind and HP and so on. And I think we have the potential over the next 15 to 10, 20, 20 years or so to make spectacular progress. It goes back to the green swan argument in the sense that we've left change sensible change logical change effective change was so long that we've now in one of these moments where we either collapse or we break through it's either breakdown or breakthrough and um i often requote what people in silicon valley talk about which was the hemingway quote from his novel the sun also rises somebody was asked how did you become bankrupt and the answer was gradually then suddenly we now live in a gradually then suddenly world and we see that with climate uh, you know the climate emergency and all sorts of different problems that we now face but potentially the solutions go up the same track if we get the technology story right it's a crucial moment the next 10 of 20 years are the one that can decide the future from the entire mankind and the third point that you really mentioned earlier on was about the collaboration the work that you have done we know that you sit in many boards you advise many companies, many even Fortune 500 or other companies. So what advice would you give to the company? What advice you are giving to company to, to incorporate sustainability in their business strategy? Because sometimes we still discuss that how companies can really become actors in the, in the space of sustainability. As you suggest, we've been very lucky over the decades, certainly I have, to work with most of the leadership companies in key countries around the world, an immense privilege. And I've, I've served on now over 80 boards and advisory boards. But what have I learned along the way? Well, one of them, one of the lessons has been that companies that try and do all of this on their own in their boardrooms, sort of with locked doors and the rest, which was the old approach, are going to fail, almost guaranteed to fail. Whereas those that open themselves up to challenge from their own people, from people from the outside. I chair two uh, advisory boards for two different co companies. One is Novartis, the Swiss healthcare company. Another is Neste, the Finnish uh, energy company. So I think in increasingly business has got to bring the outside world in, in a way that is not simply nice to have you have a cup of coffee, uh, goodbye, but is these people are built into the strategic processes, uh, formulation processes within the business. That's the first thing. The second is that within their own companies or organizations, there are now very much younger people who think about these things very differently. Uh, they see the reality, which many of the people who are now sitting on boards or in C-suites still struggle to properly see and one of the things that's very striking is the number of people at senior levels in business who routinely say to me i'm now being beaten up by my children because they they're worried about climate or whatever it is uh, and i'm being forced to see these issues challenges opportunities in the way that they see them so i, th I think pay attention to your younger people and i think the third thing would be get out more and that's difficult because we've just gone through the lockdowns of COVID and all the rest of it. So people are sort of not flying and they're, they're, they're for all sorts of reasons. But I think we've got to travel. We've got to go and see the people who are really trying to do new things in, in, in radically different ways uh, and learn from some of the mistakes that they make along 
the way. So uh, th those would be some initial suggestions, but fundamentally, that the advice has to be take this seriously because this is now an existential set of risks uh, for the business. And if you don't sort it out, competitors will, and you'll be swept aside. And it's really true. So it's like the foundational core sustainability at the core of the strategy of the company. The, the question now I have for you, it is from your observatory. You have, you have previous, as you say, to being many boards and seeing and discussing at, at the high level forum. How do you see the future and the way forward? If you, you have discussed about the next 10 to 20 years. We can really reach what you call, you know, this uh, sustainable world, getting into regeneration of our ecosystems. And which are the main challenges that you, you see within these 10 years? Well, I think one of the challenges that has come up time and again, and I mentioned green consumerism, and I, I helped sort of launch that movement back in the late 80s. And we had a book, The Green Consumer Guide, which sold a million copies in 20, well, in 18 months and in 20 different countries. And very rapidly, businesses responded by greenwashing. And now we're seeing the same thing with ESG washing and impact washing and so on. It's a very human response to say, yes, of course, we're doing bits of that here, there and the other. Trust us, uh, because and wouldn't you like to focus on quality of our products and, and price point and things like that? Um, so I think one of the one of the risks that we face and, and Dennis Hayes, who founded Earth Day back in 1970, has just gone public with talking about how people like him have had to fight washing activities by business at every stage of the evolution of this agenda i think we have to come down hard on not not just over enthusiasm because i think when people make promises that they genuinely believe they can deliver on but then fail for whatever reason if they're transparent about all of that that's fine but if they do it several times then i think you we've really got to rein them in and i think uh, People like the European Commission are doing that with ESG funds. Huge numbers of funds, hundreds of thousands, are now being told that they can't use the ESG uh, branding and language in what they're doing. Uh, and I think that's necessary. That's one big thing. The, the second one is money. The, the total sums of money that we need to deploy to address these big challenges, uh, you know, in, uh, environmental and societal and economic and all the rest of it, are still way ahead of the sums that we're actually managing to mobilize. And therefore, two things. One is we've got to work out how we get, in effect, walls of money, as the, the money people would describe it, moving in the right direction. But at the same time, what we don't end up with is the, the money people capturing sustainability and bending it to their own needs, which, you know, as we've seen, ends up with wealth divides and political lobbying going off the scale and, and a sort of lock in to an old order. I think there are many challenges, but actually I would say that part of the reason I'm so excited about this moment in our collective history is that, you know, somebody once said, you know, if, if, if you're born into a time without challenges, you've been robbed. Well, the one thing you can say is that we haven't been robbed because we have, we have almost challenges coming out of our ears, but we've got to work out how do we solve these things, but simultaneously in an integrated way. And going back to the triple bottom line, in 2018, you may know, but I did the first ever product recall of a management concept. I, I didn't conclude that. The Harvard Business Review, who published the piece, told me that that was the case. And it wasn't because I thought the triple bottom line was a bad idea, but I just, I saw it being misinterpreted. I saw people saying, this is about trade-offs. This is about 
how we do some of this and a little bit of that and shame about this third area or whatever the the idea of the triple bottom line it was about integration it was about synthesizing bringing things together in in in, in new ways which involves innovation it involves creativity it involves courage uh, and every time you say courage to politicians they run if you say uh, courage to uh, ceos of major companies they'll pay attention uh, perhaps a bit more than politicians but that is what we need i mean th this is this is the biggest opportunity of our lifetimes but opportunities always bring disruption and disruption costs people their jobs it costs people their companies it costs people their economies in some cases because if you're locked into fossil fuels you're going to find in very short order you can't sell that stuff you can't give it away i find the younger people coming into the space immensely immensely inspiring because you know yes they're concerned and yes they're frightened and anxious and all the rest of it but they're determined to get this thing sorted and i think we've got to help them in any way we can and thank you so much for this explanation, really showing us the way forward and the challenges that we have. And uh, really, as you say, they are coming out of the, our ears, they are, they are drowning on that, but we are really wanted to, to work. And this is objectives of the podcast, trying to meet and give from change makers like you to discuss and, and give back to the listener. And, and we want to discuss with you, we have also to to limit ourselves, and I'm sure that we will have also occasion to have you again, because you are so insightful and really like a, a oxygen to our world and to our mind for people that want change. And for those people that are listening to us, our um, listeners around the world, which is John Elkington message, how they can really change, what, what they can do. Sometimes that is the question we have been asked. Yes, wonderful episode, but really, what we can do? We are listening to you. What we what we do? Almost whatever role people are playing, there will be ways in which they can help with what needs to happen next part of the my message would again be what i've said in terms of senior leaders in business get out more go and see people who are doing interesting new things they may be b corporations they they may be in big companies that aren't b corporations ask to go and see them and try and understand what they're doing support them where they're doing good things i think also there is now a huge literature in this space. I, I, I've sort of made my own contributions to it over time. But the best attempt in, in recent times that I, I've made was uh, the book Green Swans. So, I mean, I would sort of recommend that. And we, two websites, which give a little bit of background on what we do. One is uh, volans.com and the other is johnelkington.com. And you'll, you'll find a, a, a lot of background there. But I, I would say believe, don't despair, just believe that this can change. It's going to be very challenging, but then uncharacter forming, uh, but that can be good. And the one thing I, 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 I often say is I'm amazed at how many really extraordinary good people are in this space already. But when we look back in the 2030s at this space, there will be hundreds of thousands if not millions of new people in this space help them they're going to need all sorts of help in doing what they want to do and thank you so much john for this wonderful and insightful episode we will put in the comment the links and also the link to your to your book thank you so much it's been a real pleasure having you are you satisfied after this wonderful episode let's continue together our sustainability journey